2: Yeah, can you figure out who it is? Uh, I'll he's, give you. He's so give, tall. Yeah, I'll give you a hint. He's really tall. He's recently written a book, what? and he knows a lot about the FBI. Wait a minute,
0: is <gasps> this your close personal friend, Jim Comey?
1: No,
3: even better. The only thing better,
2: it's my good friend Garrett Graf.
0: Oh.
1: Hi there, guys. I'm so excited Hi. to be here. This is my favorite hour of the week, and now I actually get to participate and not just pretend that this is a cocktail party that I'm attending <laughs> on my phone.
2: Well, we'd better pour you some scotch, then.
0: <laughs> Garrett Graff, still not Jim Comey. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the I-don't-get-confused edition.
4: If you drink enough scotch, you'll get confused.
0: Shane. <laughs> right now, I'm Shane Harris, lucid reporter, <laughs> so for the next 20 minutes until this kicks in. And it I just is,
2: confused you all by with my special guest.
0: You did confuse us all with your special guest, who who used to drink scotch with me in the afternoons all the time. Remember that, Garrett? In the good old days. When the we were good old days. Kids. Remember when when we were running a magazine. <laughs> People don't know this about Garrett and I, but we did. We worked together for three years. Wait,
4: what's a magazine?
0: Uh, Washingtonian. It was this thing that came out on paper.
4: No. There yeah, pictures? with pictures
0: in it. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was great. Um, that was back when Garrett was between books. How many books have you written now? Three. Eight. Three.
1: And uh, Shane, that was like nine and a half jobs ago for you? That was like (laughs) (laughs) Itinerant reporter Shane Harris.
0: You knew it it when you hired me, Graf. (laughs) (laughs) I am here in the studio with Garrett and Ben and Susan tomorrow. Hi, everybody. Hi,
3: Shane. Hey.
0: It's a lovely day in the neighborhood, and we have much, much to talk about. We're not even going to get to all the week's news, kids. And it's
3: all confusing. It's all All so much confusion.
0: We're so confused. Oh, my God. More than usual. confused. Wow. Okay. First up, Jim Comey has a few words to say. Who? Who? Garrett's like our Comey slash Mueller whisperer, by the way. That's that's. He's the
1: stand-in. He's the stand-in. Has Comey's book come out yet? I haven't heard a word about (laughs) about it anywhere. What's a book? (laughs) I've
0: completely missed this. Uh, I've been focused on Nikki Haley and her confusion. The White House throws Nikki Haley. You remember her. Under the bus, or did they? We're going to talk about that. And Mike Pompeo makes a surprise trip to, where else do you go on Easter? North Korea. All right, let's talk first about um, what is inescapably in the goddamn news this week, that Jim Comey uh, wrote a book and apparently like <laughs> signed a contract to have him on air for eight days, 24 hours. Um, we're not going to relitigate everything that's in the book. We're not going to go back over emails. Much. I feel like much of what was in the book we've seen from uh press reporting we've seen from the memos we've seen from Comey's public statements etc all that but um we're gonna talk about some i think the attendant issues although ben i do want to at least just as a first order i just want to ask you a question uh and i'll put you on the spot uh does your friend's book live up to the hype
2: so i don't i don't know how to answer that question because uh you know my engagement with this subject matter is so unusual that uh, I am, and I'm therefore so far from the typical reader that, and I knew a fair bit of the material in the book, you know, both as, both in real time and some of it later. uh, And so I, I feel like I'm sort of exactly the wrong person to answer that question, honestly.
0: All right, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we'll all go around the room and answer this question. But Garrett, you're the guest. You go first. Uh,
1: so I was actually disappointed by how little new knowledge Jim Comey's book uh, brought to the table, uh, particularly in he. You know, he spent most of the. Depth of the second half of the book, and you know the uh, the Russia stuffs really only begins on page one hundred and fifty nine yeah. of a two hundred and seventy three page book. So there's a lot in the book that will be a, a totally traditional memoir for right. a sort of a Washington power player. Uh, but what I was really surprised by was how little time he spends talking about Russia uh, and how little. He sort of advances any of the knowledge about the questions that we haven't heard answers to in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, literally the question about, you know, whether to go public with the FBI uh, knowledge of the DNC hack and Russia's role in it and the broader uh, campaign by Russia is just a couple of sentences in the book. I mean, it's basically a parenthetical um, Andy McCabe's uh, decision, if it was Andy McCabe's decision, which uh, seems uh, a little bit uh, unclear at this point, uh, to sort of hold off on diving into Anthony Weiner's laptop for three weeks at the beginning of October is dealt with in literally just a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are sort of big mysteries where we actually could have used more information. And I would have really liked to hear his answers and his explanations uh, that he just doesn't get into, and instead sort of spends most of it, insofar as he explains anything, talking about why he spoke publicly in the that July 5th press conference and then in that October letter to Congress reopening the investigation.
4: So, look, I mean, it's first of all, it's clear what... Uh, what's been keeping Jim Comey up at night as he reflects on his record of public service. Um, And that's what seems to occupy most of his time in the book. So that's, I suppose, interesting in and of itself. But on the Russia stuff in particular, I mean, this is an ongoing investigation, right? Right. Uh, And so the things that we already know, the things we knew before this book came out, we know because of hearings, right? We know because of actions by uh, Bob Mueller. We know because of court filings or we know because of investigative leaks that have been uh, reported. Um, And I personally would find it a little bit odd if the former FBI director sort of put a lot of stuff about an ongoing investigation into a book. Um, at this point, um, so I, I'm not surprised by that. Although I guess it does diminish the interest of the of the text for a general audience, but I do think that this book fits into a genre. Right, it fits into a genre of the memoir of of high level public service uh, of serving um, in the executive branch and and. You know, usually what will come out in these memoirs is closely guarded until publication because that's what gives these things juice at all is the inside story, you know, the fly on the wall, or let me tell you about this conversation that happened behind closed doors. And in Jim Comey's case, we know a lot of that already because he testified on the Hill about it um, and because of of the the contemporaneous memos that he wrote. And so, you know, it was never going to live up to the hype as uh, an example of that genre. Um, But I also kind of wonder how it fits into that panoply of public service memoirs uh, in general, because it's not a case of a senior official who... um, who served personally as the friend and confidant of a president of the United States, which is one thing that makes those things valuable, the kind of insight into the mindset. Um, it's also not a story of somebody who, uh, whose role in history we know the outcome of. You know, it's not like I ended this war, which is now done. We're in the middle of this story.
3: And so it's a very weird time to read a memoir like this. Yeah, so I agree with all that. I actually think some of the most interesting parts of the book were the parts that had nothing to do with Russia. You know, um, I, I, hearing his account of sort of the Stellar Wind episodes, uh, you know, the the, the torture episodes, right? These are you know sort of <clears throat> elements of DOJ history that it's really fascinating to sort of see his first can uh, firsthand account. I guess that's sort of like a, a lawfare wonky thing to be interested in, but I, I thought that stuff was really fascinating, and I thought it was a really interesting book into. His His mindset as sort of, you know, how he thinks about leadership, how he thinks about big organizations. Um, I I also thought it was, you know, he was he was intensely personal in some parts. And I I thought sort of the way he discussed, you know, the loss of his child and and what you do with those things as being really, really powerful. Struck me as a little bit unfortunate that he wasn't sort of able to tell those stories, or sort of the, the stories of his career in more depth and detail. It was all sort of just rushing to get to the end of sort of the russia investigation I agree that part felt really uh, lacking is is not the word um I think the the the, the criticism of the, the way he treated it was, it was sort of, I, you know, I, I pissed off the Democrats, I pissed off the Republicans, everybody is mad at me, and therefore that is the evidence, you know, that, that what I did was, uh, was certainly unbiased. I, I don't think the question was whether or not sort of Comey was biased or unbiased. I, I think he failed to engage with some of that sort of, you know, the, the moderate or, or middle criticism. I wish he had taken that on a little bit more directly. I think that it would feel more satisfying. But ultimately, this all strikes me as just background noise, The part of the book, or the Russia part of the book, uh, when Comey describes his interaction with President Trump, he is undeniably telling the truth. It is just absolutely obvious that he is being uh, consistent and clear and he is not obfuscating or hiding the ball at all and so I am a little bit disappointed to see that the sort of the coverage is really relitigating decisions that right wrong whatever it they're they're done and and there's nothing anyone can do about them there's this huge piece that has such intense bearing on the current president of the United States and what he did and is doing whether or or not it was illegal or not. And and I'm a little bit confused why this book hasn't sparked a, a renewed focus on that conversation. Instead, it's like we're back to October 2016.
2: Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I think the remarkable thing about, uh, leave aside the, the book, its merits, Comey's behavior and its merits, the remarkable thing about the reaction to the book is how focused it is on true marginalia you know these two lines one in which he talks about the president's hands uh, and doesn't even mention that they're that you know I uh, say that they're particularly small and the other in which he refers to skin tone uh, on the one hand and also this uh, intense relitigation of the merits of of, of the of the 2000, uh, October 2016 letter. And I I find this really frustrating because you know think what you will about uh, either of those things this is just not what is important right now and and I'm I'm uh, you know amazed that you can that you can write a book with with the accounts. Uh, And the claims about the president admittedly not new that he has there and that that not even be the central focus of the discussion.
0: But I mean, I mean, Garrett, I mean, you're you're the other journalist in the room. I mean, the least surprising thing to the reaction about this book to me is that everyone is focused on, you know, the pot shots he took about Trump's hands and his hair and his tanning goggles, which. And and don't forget
1: the super breaking news that he wore gold tie. To his to his Senate hearing, so that he didn't appear to be partisan with a red tie or a blue tie. Right, right. That, I think I saw three separate articles Talk about written about
0: thinking, that. Though. But like, I, I think mean, that. But I mean, I think you think about this too, because I mean, like, you know, you've you've covered these men. I mean, Bob Mueller, by the way, the previous occupant of this office. Uh, never wrote a memoir, and Garrett, you've written the closest thing to his biography. But I think that the reason that the press is focusing on this is because they want to understand the dynamics at play here as a contest between these two men of Trump and of Comey. And it's easier to sort of invest in each of them all of the weighty issues and the anxieties and the pros and cons, and they want to see how they're sizing each other up. I suspect Jim Comey knows that. He seems rather savvy about the way that he's rolled out this book.
4: He's totally playing into it. Yeah, he frankly, is. He I absolutely find that is. I a shame.
0: Okay, I think it so,
4: detracts from the substance.
0: Well, I want to hear that. But, Gareth, first let me ask you to say, do you think that's true mean journalistically speaking – and then, you know, tomorrow I'll take the question of, like, why do you think that's a shame?
1: So I, I think it, it is really fascinating to sort of see how mono a mono this has now become. Uh, and in part, uh, and this was one of the things that I wrote about in when I was writing about the, the Comey's book, is that there is, has become this sense, I think both on the left and the right, Uh, over the last six months that Bob Mueller, Jim Comey, and Andy McCabe are basically all the same person, um, sort Mm. of cut from the same cloth, sort of exactly identical worldviews. And what I think we've really seen over the last week is just how different these three people are. Um, You know, I said that it was, uh, you know, having read Comey's book, it is impossible to imagine Bob Mueller ever writing a book anything like this, oh, yeah. that is sort of that personal, that mono a mano, and sort of that focused on the I, not the we. Um, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the Jim Comey's book is all about sort of Jim Comey. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and then sort of at the same time, you know, Thursday and Friday as the Jim Comey book news is rolling out, we, we see the Inspector General report come out that where it actually makes clear um, and in uh, 18 minutes before we started taping the podcast this afternoon, Comey uh, confirmed this on The View that he actually launched the internal investigation against Andy McCabe that ended up with Andy McCabe's firing over whether McCabe had been, uh, you know, less than candid about his leaks uh, uh, of information to the Wall Street Journal and whether they were authorized, and and Oops.
4: so so it's not like McCabe and Comey were conspiring together to bring down President Trump. That's not true. It, it actually <laughs> turns out tomorrow job. to be
1: slightly more complicated. Than <laughs> that. The, the, the the deep state is not quite as monolithic as we have been led to believe.
4: It's not all the Virginia Democratic Party yeah. that's at the heart of this.
1: Tomorrow,
0: why is it a shame that this is? That, I mean, even if okay. It, even if Comey is sort of writing a book that he's trying to rec- recognize, reflects you know the, the principles of virtuous leadership versus non virtuous, and what better way than to uphold yourself as the model of, of virtuous leadership, which I'm sure he's not trying to do. But why is it a shame if that's the way the book is playing?
4: Well, okay, so I I think to a certain extent it's inevitable that if you get a big contract to write a book like this, first of all, it and it is was gonna, big, let's it be it was clear. big. Um, That the book is going to be personal and it is going to be about the I and not the we because no trade press is going to publish a book that isn't like that. Okay, so by accepting the contract to write that book rather than to write a book about honorable leadership, which is not about you, which is not a memoir. Right. Sorry. That's an (laughs) academic book. Right. Who's going to read that? Um, But if you accept that contract, you uh, you willingly enter into uh the expectation that that's what you're going to produce and so it sets up the mano a mano thing i think what bothers me about it what i find a shame about it is two things number one that it reinforces what we already have which is the media's inability to get beyond covering the trump presidency like a reality television show trump manipulates the media as if he is running a reality television show, and the media continually falls into that trap. The White House correspondents in particular almost have no choice because that's what's driving their, uh, what they have to cover every day. And so I think, you know, Comey writing about tanning goggles or the size of someone's hands or, you know, well, he's unfit, and then the president, of course, responds on Twitter, he's a slime slimeball, um, it it just feeds this reality television sensation. This is serious business. And I take to heart very much that Jim Conamy was sincerely acting uh, on behalf of a set of norms and laws and institutions that he cares about, that he thinks we should care about. And I think that sense of mission is diminished by the way this book is framed and by the way he is compelled to publicize it. Um, so that's the first reason. And then the second reason is that it distracts from the – exactly as you were saying, Garrett, we don't get to talk about the Russia stuff and we don't even get enough of the substance of the Russia stuff in the book or the discussion around the book because we're just talking about this clash of titans.
0: Susan.
3: I mean, I think whenever I've sort of gone back and forth, um, you know, obviously only actually read the book over the weekend, but um, I've sort of gone back and forth and thinking like, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Is it a good thing for him to write the book now? Or is it a bad thing? Does it make things better or worse? And I think because of the events of late last week, um, you know, whenever there there was all this heightened speculation that Trump was going to fire Rod Rosenstein and the future of the Mueller investigation, I've sort of come back around to no, it's a good thing that that he's published this book, uh, especially the parts that sort of talk about his, uh, his encounters with the president. And that's for much of the reasons that you just highlighted, Tammy. Right. What his story goes to uh, you know th- these central questions, law, the independence of law enforcement, uh, you know, the importance of uh, of of procedures designed to protect the legitimacy. How hard that is to do, actually. How as soon as you start deviating from the rules, as soon as you start sort of messing with this very articulated system that has developed sort of over the past 50 years in order to allow Americans to point to the Department of Justice, point to the FBI and say, even though this is part of the executive branch, they are not political, right? There's so much about uh, about sort of prosecutorial discretion, right? You You can prosecute. Anyway, there are lots and lots of choices inherent in this system. And so this is a really, really tough balance. And so I think I don't know that this was the point Comey was trying to make, but I do think it's it's a point that is drawn out and is so relevant now. And that's that as soon as there's sort of an, an aberration, something in this system that doesn't belong, somebody stops playing by the rules. all of a sudden, everything's out of whack. and even people that are trying to do the right thing, end up inadvertently making things worse, or, right? That it's sort of, we're, we're really in no man's land now. Mm-hmm. And, and that in the context of where we are in the current news cycle, right? You know, fast forward to present day, it's, it paints this picture that's just so incredibly disturbing to me.
1: I think that that's a really interesting way of looking at this, Susan. Because one of the things, as you mentioned, you know, the first half of the book really is him talking about his time as a prosecutor, particularly on organized crime cases, and then getting into the Bush Justice Department. Which, um, w- without relitigating the entire history of the post nine eleven, let's go back. Uh, let's
3: talk. Yeah. Let's talk <laughs> to again. Uh,
1: um, the post 9 11 sort of terror presidency. Um, it, you sort did, of actually, did you
4: say something about warrantless wiretapping? <laughs> well, so
1: th- that sort of becomes this weird counterpoint to the to Comey's interactions with the Trump White House is watching him go through these battles with the Bush White House, where ultimately, sort of in every case, and I'm vastly oversimplifying very complex bureaucratic decisions, in every case, uh, effectively the Bush uh, ju- the Bush White House says, "Well, we defer to the Justice Department to tell us what's legal." And so if you don't think, you know, if you don't think Stellar Wind is legal, if you withdraw the torture program memos, um, you know, we're going to abide by that. As And again, I'm sort of oversimplifying this, uh, but, you know, that's certainly not the behavior that we see come out of the Trump White House in the clashes with the Justice Department in the, in the uh, over the last year and a half.
0: So very briefly before we move on to the next topic, <clears throat> and I don't want to handicap this and try to boil it down into a horse race thing, but you know this book does arrive at a very fraught moment i mean last week we were all basically anticipating that this time next week we might not have a special counsel or certainly not a deputy attorney general does do you think that the book makes it more or less likely that trump might move on rosenstein or doesn't necessarily have an effect
1: i mean i really hesitate to make any predictions about this situation at all um, except that, you know, in some ways, anything in the world that distracts from Rod Rosenstein mm-hmm. and uh, Bob Mueller is probably good for, uh, you know, good for them. Yeah. So if the Donald Trump is spending the whole week uh, railing against Jim Comey, that's not him railing against the deputy attorney general. Yeah.
3: I do think, though, it could risk having the um, the opposite effect, which is that to the extent that Trump is successful in convincing large portions of America, that the FBI was against them, that they're partisan, that it's him versus Comey and there's no difference between Comey and all these other people, that might make him feel emboldened to, you know, to essentially take some actions against Rosenstein or Mueller or, or whoever else without feeling like there's going to be any consequences because he can just wrap it all up in sort of in the, in the, the political reality he's created. Yeah, I mean, I I think going back
4: to the point about driving the narrative that we've talked about um, before, the fact is that Mueller was appointed after Comey was fired because Comey was fired. But Trump, in his narrative to his base, has been linking the two, tying them, like handcuffing them together. And so to the extent that the book drives a narrative of Comey versus the president, Comey hostile to the president, whatever, the handcuffing of Mueller to Comey is not good for, for acceptance of the Mueller investigation amongst the American public. Yeah.
1: Um, Tamar, I think that, that that to me was actually one of the most interesting aspects of the Comey book is uh, how he tells in, in actually some new detail, I think, how masterfully he played the political system to leak his to leak word of his memos to push for a special counsel after his firing um, and sort of makes clear just what a savvy political player Jim Comey actually is, which I found sort of all the more interesting to contrast with how passively he seemed to see his role over the course of 2016 mm-hmm. where he was sort of uh, being acted upon rather than being the person who was doing the action.
4: Yeah it doesn't doesn't quite add up. But we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) We cannot resist. We're going to talk about something else that
0: doesn't quite add up. Uh, United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, on Sunday, last Sunday, went on television to say that there would be a new round of sanctions coming that Secretary Mnuchin would be announcing against Russia on Monday Uh, and uh, made it sound like this had already been decided. And, yep, we're good to go. Uh, Well, somewhere between that interview... Uh, And the following day, uh, the script got flipped, as they say, uh, and there was some confusion when on Monday the sanctions weren't coming and Secretary Mnuchin did not come out and enumerate these sanctions. Uh, And we and others have done some reporting around this that essentially uh, Trump uh, changed his mind or failed to communicate what he really wanted. There was a meeting earlier in the week that everyone seemed to think we are doing sanctions. Uh, uh, Larry Kudlow, the uh, uh, the I guess the newest character on the show.
4: <laughs> Who, by the way, why is Larry Kudlow talking to the press about oh, serious strikes? Well, like, you know, he's the economic advisor. We're going like, to need Hello? another show about that. Okay. Sorry. Um, cut, the to, cousin I'm, Oliver. Yeah. It's, it's been puzzling me for days.
0: Yeah. Uh, he just he can't stay away from the camera. The camera loves him tomorrow. Loves him. I'm going to run with Chuck Schumer. <laughs> I don't think that there's not a camera big enough. Um, <clears throat> then said, it appears that Nikki Haley may have gotten confused confused uh which spawned the title of our show and literally the greatest quote of the week i don't give a damn what's in jim comey's book which was with all due respect i don't get confused you so throw the
3: bus at nikki haley she throws the bus right back seriously yeah. she picked up the bus like wonder <laughs> she woman did a like, ah! yes. um,
0: so uh, Tammy, let me ask you this question so did nikki haley get thrown under the bus i mean like nikki haley did not go out on sunday And in a confused state, say that we're about to sanction Russia.
4: Right. She was not freelancing in that policy statement. She, and it was detailed. It wasn't, you know, a sort of vague, there were talking points. They've been reported, they
0: came out the day before. She was literally reading the script.
4: And it was entirely (laughs) consistent with what the president had said. On Friday, which is that the U.S. was going to be using all of its foreign policy tools, including economic and diplomatic tools. It was consistent with briefings that were given by administration officials on Saturday saying that there were going to be additional um, economic policy responses, i.e. sanctions, sort of the go-to Uh, economic policy response uh, when it comes to coercive diplomacy. So yeah, it all made sense. Um, I do have to stop and note just for a moment that this is hardly the first time that a uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations has gone on Sunday talk shows and been, um, let's say, uh, a little bit ahead of the White House, um, or it turns out that there's distance between uh, what she said on the Sunday shows and, and what the White House decides the facts are a day later. Um, the last time spawned, a, you know, many, many months of Benghazi investigation by congressional committees. Um, so it's not unprecedented, uh, but it is notable, I think, for a couple reasons. The um, The first reason is is a substantive policy reason, which is that the fact that the president pulled the rug out from under her and apparently the collective process that had generated a decision to go down the list after strikes to include economic sanctions um, is a a signal to the Russians that, okay, we tossed some missiles on these places in Syria where we were very careful not to hit you, and we're not going to hit you with sanctions either. Uh, So don't worry. uh, we we got you covered. Um, it is a signal of weakness. It is a signal that the president is holding back uh, his team from doing anything more. Uh, and he's not willing to take this situation and leverage it against the Russians at all. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's evidence of the complete policy dysfunction on the national security side of this White House, which of course has been obvious in a lot of instances. We've talked about it a lot before, but especially notable at the end of a week that was John Bolton's first week in office. Um, It means that whatever order McMaster and Kelly were able to bring to the formal process, uh, it didn't last beyond McMaster's departure. It didn't last days beyond McMaster's departure. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of people in the interagency who thought there was a decision, on Friday that included sanctions and uh, and it didn't hold. And, you know, there's been other reporting over the weekend to suggest more broadly on the president's attitude toward policy uh, with regard to Russia, that um, he doesn't, he, he has several times signed off on things that he's later regretted, that he's decided were too harsh or that he didn't really understand the implications of and was angry including about. Including
1: the whole federal budget. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're right. Right. And so, you know,
4: program. this is just a – this is a, a president who doesn't listen. He doesn't absorb information. He's making decisions off the cuff. Uh, and he doesn't care about uh, about what the agencies he directs generate for him so as the, recommendations.
0: So is it – excuse me, maybe I kick this to you then. Is the – do we presume that between the meeting – On I guess it was Friday where everyone thinks we're doing sanctions, the talking points on Saturday, Nikki Haley on Sunday, and then Monday, Trump, by some accounts, freaking out and watching her on the TV, that he just changed his mind in there or that someone got to him?
3: Yeah, so, (laughs) look— So sort of speaking of savvy political actors, you know, I, I think Nikki Haley is um, is very, very conscious of sort of her her public image. Right. And she's played this very, very well. And as we get closer and closer to 2020, uh, as Mike Pompeo's nomination maybe looks more up in the air, uh, I it will be interesting to watch sort of what she's what she's doing. And I think she's handled this episode well. Um, uh, you know, certainly she's not one to, to go on the Sunday shows without sort of clearing her talk. Talking points. I do think that the underlying substantive question of why Trump reversed uh, is the important one here, and it's tied to a, an earlier story that came out I guess last week in, um, uh, in the Washington Post as well, which is sort of I think Timmy was referring to it, this sort of account of Trump's battle with his own advisors on Russia issues. And it doesn't just describe a president that changes his mind because he's sort of you know mercurial and, and doesn't know which end is up. It describes a president that has to be dragged, kicking and screaming, into doing anything that might be perceived as, as uh, counter to russia and then flips out i mean in in a way that is sort of is panicked right we're talking about screaming and expletives anytime he believes he's being portrayed in the media as tough on russia even though when that happens he's usually being praised right donald trump who who never you know heard a nice thing about himself that he didn't feel like repeating and exaggerating On this one issue, it appears to enrage him. And I I don't want to be sort of too conspiracy theory about all of this, but it is so incredibly bizarre that on the one issue in which he could gain the easiest political points. His advisors are clearly on the same page. He still just, he like cannot seem to bring himself to do this stuff. Why
0: do you think that's conspiratorial to suggest that there's something strange about
3: that? Because I feel like it gets to this like, do the Russians have some sort of like leverage? Is it the P tape, right? It's, I don't. I want there to be a more rational explanation. But why isn't
0: rational? I mean, if we're talking, I mean, I'm not. Look, I'm not claiming there's a peepee tape or anything like that. Please <laughs> let there be a peepee tape, but
1: um, lordy, it's a good story. So my theory on this is that by the time this is over, the peepee tape is <laughs> not going to be the big deal. That that is actually less weird than whatever the actual answer actually is.
0: But you, but you, but you hold out going to my question. That is simple like Occam's razor explanation here is that there is something that the Russians know that he doesn't want known. But there's
2: another simple
0: explanation,
2: which is Donald Trump is a, among other things, simply does not want to do what is expected of him to do. And he gets his back up. And if you expect him, you know, if, if, if you if you tell him Mexico's not going to pay for the wall, he digs in that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. And if you tell him that actually Amazon does not depend does not uh, depend on postal service largesse but is subsidizing the postal service, he orders a study to prove the opposite. If you tell him that he wasn't elected, uh, that that he didn't win the popular vote, he <laughs> believes that there are three to five million illegal aliens who voted. And if you tell him that it's imp- imp- uh, that that. Uh, that he needs to uh, reevaluate his attitude toward Russia. He gets his back up about Russia, but that's not I mean,
0: what Susan's saying. Susan's saying is that when he acts strongly against Russia, everyone goes great, right? And but, by that logic, you're saying like, well, forget it. I'm pulling back then. No, you know? no, no.
2: Because because when you praise him for being tough on Russia, you're acknowledging that he, you're, you're stating that his premise was wrong, he, and and that he's acting contrary yeah. to his. Uh, uh, to his uh. campaign premises and to his whole public persona, which it's the is insecurity that he, theory, and it's it's all about. I mean, look, I don't I don't say that there's no compromat. I'm not saying that Russia doesn't have something, but there is another Occam's razor explanation, which is Would, that the guy's an asshole
4: or or a toddler. I mean, is what you're describing. So, I I think that's possible. Um, I I have to say I find the speculation about whether the Russians have something that they can blackmail him with, um, intriguing, but also he's kind the of- the
3: only one too polite to say Pete. <laughs> just say
4: it with <laughs> it's just, it, because it could be debt, it could be all kinds of things, but it really is beside the point on the policy issue. The policy issue is it doesn't matter anymore what the actual policy of the United States is because the signaling from the president is so clear, which is that he's going to let Russia off the hook again and again and again.
1: I also thought in the article that Susan's talking about, I think it was in the same article, uh, there was such an interesting process note that as part, you know, President Trump was sort of horrified to discover how many Russians oh, right. we were expelling <laughs> as part of the crackdown. Because no one that, told him what medium was. And so it, other
3: people were doing less. It,
1: that other people were doing less because. He basically had just never read the memo and so had been relying on what people were talking about, where they just sort of because he doesn't read, yeah. and sort of just and sort of going back to this sort of fundamental question of, uh, of the Nikki Haley talking points and the sanctions, sort of like that US policy isn't actually set until the president realizes what he's actually agreed to or not. And there's sort of this whole second level where he's like. Oh, oh, wait, it, it, did I do that? Because if so, that's definitely not what I meant to do. And that's just not right. how now, the interagency is supposed to work. Right, now
4: take that approach and translate that to international diplomacy at the head of state level. And that's when yeah. it gets really terrifying, right? So I, I just, I want to go back to Nikki Haley for just a second though, because I think that, one really interesting um, outgrowth of this weekend's events is the the discussion about Haley's political ambitions, which, Susan, you mentioned. And, you know, there's some speculation that she'd love to be secretary of state if Pompeo's nomination looks like it's in trouble. On the other hand, Trump seems to see that as somehow threatening or challenging. Um, but the... To me, the real play for Nikki Haley and the reason that she took this job at all is because she wants to be president of the United States. That's so clear. And I think the question that she faces now, at this point in the Trump presidency, at this point in the Mueller investigation, uh, and at this point in her own tenure in New York, is her best play to stay in that role and try to, you know, do tough things on on Syria and look like a real... uh, international level prestige diplomat or is her best play to get fired by president for trump for being too tough on russia um and to me because she's so savvy as susan said her choice in that regard is going to be an indicator of how much trouble the president is in
0: i like it i like those indicators all right um speaking of indicators i don't know this is a segue
3: just commit to it speaking of nouns speaking of
0: reading the stage directions (laughs) shane turns to susan susan speaking of mike pompeo (laughs) i could have used that actually speaking of Mike, Pompeo. damn he was standing right in front of me um so mike pompeo you know did what you do on easter hang out with kim jong-un um, we broke the story in the Post last night that he made a secret visit over the Easter weekend to meet with the North Korean leader to, uh, you know, talk about nuclear negotiations stuff i was
2: disappointed that he didn't bring
0: dennis rodman with him oh could you imagine then it would have been so much easier to confirm this story oh let me tell you (laughs) that's the one thing we didn't think to check was dennis rodman's goddamn twitter feed
3: oh can we also uh, please talk about we're all emailing planning for the show and then shane just drops another story it's like so inconsiderate oh
4: my god
0: need to know basis kids how dare you? <laughs> How dare you throw that out Susan's like, don't you pull that shit with me, so. <laughs> i the only cleared person in this room. <laughs> Susan uh, does Glomar. Actually, no one else does <laughs> Glomar. Uh, Tammy, you may still have a clearance. <laughs> no. Um, but I actually, so I'm actually, this is a question I am dying to ask you, Tammy is that, okay, so Mike Pompeo goes to North Korea, that in and of itself is quite extraordinary, has the, the highest level meeting since 2000, when Madeleine Albright was there, Jim Clapper was there in 2014, it was a lower level thing, and it wasn't a negotiation about policy, it was to get captives back, um, and appears to have extracted at least some assurance, enough assurance from the North Koreans that they're willing to talk to Nuclearization. that a week later, administration officials start telling reporters that we think they're ready to talk denuclearization. Um so as stage setting and, or table setting for this summit that is going to come up, how significant is what Mike Pompeo did?
4: Yeah, so it's interesting. When the, when the White House uh, said that the North Koreans were ready to talk about denuclearization, there was a lot of poo-pooing uh, because based on their public statements, it sounded like all they'd said was what they'd said in the past. And to them, denuclearization in the past means the U.S. takes its forces out of the Korean Peninsula. Um,
0: I hope Mike Pompeo did check that.
4: So (laughs) one hopes that this face-to-face direct conversation was clearer and more specific than those public statements so that's the first thing i i think actually in terms of hoping for a summit that is a not a disaster and be maybe even productive in opening a line for diplomatic progress uh on the korean peninsula it's a good thing uh that that mike pompeo met with kim jong-un i think it, it should be an unalloyed good thing preparation is good direct communication is good um but you do worry uh, with this administration about how well prepared he was, how well staffed he was. Did we have our own translator or were we relying on a North Korean translator? Was there anyone on the U.S. side taking notes? Uh, did the readouts of the meeting get back to everybody else who's involved in preparing American North Korea policy? So, And because Pompeo is a nominee to the State Department, he could not direct the use of State Department staff for this under the law. So presumably he's using CIA because that's what he's got available right now. And so, you know, that's a blur, a line that's blurred as well. So I think at, at the sort of policy process level, there are a lot of things about this that are troubling, but the fact of the meeting is good. Um, we still don't have any clear sense about uh, the, the substantive agenda here, what the U.S. is actually asking for, what the North Koreans are willing to put on the table. Um, and it sounds from the from the reporting that you guys did that a lot of what they talked about was where to have the meeting. Uh, which is sort of a picky thing on which to focus
3: I mean I, I do think sort of the the fact of the leak right now is interesting um, sort of in the context of you know Pompeo's nomination is clearly in trouble. Rand Paul opposes John McCain's not uh, not currently in Washington. Um, the Senate Foreign Relations Committees look like they're not going to to vote for him. Um, you know so this would you can sort of take him directly to to the floor but it would be the first time I think since 1925 that that would occur. Pretty strong signal that he doesn't have or wouldn't have the backing of Congress, right? So it's not pretty right, notable for
4: a former member of Congress not to have the backing of Congress.
2: Well, it's former member of the House.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so I, I think
3: that it's you know it's sort of it's interesting to think you know was this leaked to somehow sort of help him help those you know in order to sort of bolster his uh, his nominee possibilities sort of as Secretary of State.
2: But I I actually think there's another reason to think this meeting is a good thing, and that's that if President Trump is going to sit down and cut a deal, to use his terminology, with Kim Jong-un, I think it is a good thing if that deal is conditioned by the right flank of the president's world, uh, which is to say... You know, because I think what would, be, what would be really bad is if the president went and gave away the store to Kim Jong-un. Uh, and I think having the, the Pompeo-Bolton world uh, buy it from the beginning is probably a good thing, both in terms of restraining the president from doing anything really stupid, but also to make sure that, uh, that if there is a deal to be done, it's one that his actual administration can live with.
1: And and Tamara, I I think all of your process questions are fair, but I have to say one of the things that really struck me in this is just how normal this actually seemed. That I was sort of surprised reading this uh, that it wasn't Jared or Ivanka who was sent. Like sort of who better
4: to
1: negotiate with a family, a ruling family, than a member of America's ruling family. And so uh, in, in some ways, like actually seeing the CIA director sent to that uh sent to that meeting seems like an actual sign that maybe there was some normal process playing out in this yeah or
4: maybe just that president trump uh trusts pompeo and it's very clear overall that his uh son-in-law and daughter are keeping a a really low public profile and they're not as involved in policy right now i mean you're just not hearing anything about either of them these days
0: it's definitely it felt that to Garrett's point, too, it did feel normal and sort of in reporting on it and trying to understand what happened, it, it was a very, I mean, look, it, it, abnormal in the sense that you don't send usually the CIA director <clears throat> to engage in these negotiations. But although, in an admitted- Although
4: that isn't so weird. I mean, it's we, not crazy. John Brennan maybe. used to be a major channel to Saudi Arabia, right. for example. CIA directors often play that role. But the
2: reason it seemed quite so normal, Shane, is that you guys didn't get the part of the story that Sean Hannity went with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damn, Ben, step on my next scoop. Uh,
1: but, Michael but, Cohen was trying to sell some <laughs> taxi medallions in right. Pyongyang.
0: Michael Cohen is like, Mr. Kim, I have this fantastic <laughs> business opportunity for you. (laughs) Mr. Trump, as you know, is divested of all of this. Um, I'm doing Michael Cohen impressions, apparently. It wasn't bad. Do some more, do some more. Oh, I've talked, Michael Cohen and I have had moments (laughs) talk about that in another podcast. I'll do a reenactment. Um, I actually
1: think that Michael Cohen has yelled at me about one of your stories it was that was a,
0: that was when he yelled at me too. That, back yeah. in the day when we were so working we, in the magazine, we together, shared back that when experience the together. Trump
1: Hotel was the biggest scandal that Trump was involved in. Oh, in Washington. Oh god, I
0: remember our innocent days? Um, but the, the thing that seemed normal about it to me, and, and maybe it's a sign of where this administration is going. Although I hesitate to ever say that that's the case, because who knows? Is to the extent that people's titles in this administration are somewhat fungible. Right. You can be the CIA director, but basically kind of the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, which is sort of what Mike Pompeo has been. Um, Those people then take on tasks and missions that are appropriate to people of that station. And and now you could argue whether or not uh, Mike Pompeo is an effective diplomat. And many Democrats and I think probably some Republicans have, you know, grave concerns about that. But it did seem normal. Kind of putting in half air quotes there that we would send somebody of that stature out to lay the groundwork for this summit. And to Tammy's point, I mean, it's like preparation. We generally think is a good thing. Um, So, you know, Shane,
4: you're normalizing this presidency.
0: Well, it just it's it's, it's, honestly this is like the most normal thing in this (laughs) presidency that I've covered, and it's a secret meeting with the CIA director and Kim Jong Un. Like that is not like a. That's a rather extraordinary thing. But one thing that's not normal about it is that you
2: found out about it this quickly and splashed it on the, uh, on, on the front page of The Washington Post, right?
3: Well, and it's in a context in which the CIA director has been nominated to become secretary of state. That nomination's in the balance. We haven't even gotten to the new CIA director's nomination and how that hangs in the balance, right? So it's, yeah. it's playing out against the context that is just absolutely insane. That's true.
0: All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tamara, you want to go first?
4: Sure. So among the many national security news stories we didn't have time to cover in today's podcast is um, one that we've talked about before, uh, but that we saw some movement on this week, which is this uh, John Doe uh, ISIS fighter that has been held in Iraq, apparently, uh, for the last six months or so, and has been the subject of some litigation in federal court. the uh, The government, uh, it's now clear, is trying to transfer him to Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, and so I. <laughs> I uh, have been thinking about him and about what would happen to him if he does get transferred to Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I will refer listeners to Bobby Chesney and Steve Laddick's conversation about this in, uh, in their podcast. Uh, they, they go into it in great detail. But one of the things they talk about is that it seems as though he would not be transferred to jail. Uh, but that he would be transferred uh, to some form of supervision, and that means he'd probably end up at the center that I visited when I was in the kingdom in February, the Mohammed bin Nayef Counseling and Care Center, otherwise known as jihadi reeducation camp. So, uh, my object this week is a painting from one of the. Uh, beneficiaries of the Muhammad bin Nayef Center. Is that, H- is
2: that what the inmates are called? Yes,
4: the beneficiaries have of? art therapy class. Oh, this is a right. painting of, it's a brick wall with a little oh. window in it. Through the window you can see a beautiful garden and hands reaching valiantly toward the window trying to get to the garden.
2: All right. are, are the inmates or beneficiaries allowed to draw uh, paint women?
4: You know, I I'm trying to think of all the paintings we saw in that room. I don't think they had human figures
0: in them. Well, this has hands, but that's okay. These ha-
3: this has hands, all but right. not
0: faces. Okay, yeah. Susan.
3: Um, So my object lesson is is on the theme of of Comey Book Week, and it's a photograph of our former FBI director posing with members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, That would be a rap group for those of you that are not uh, uh, familiar. A rapper group. Um, Rappers. Um, And uh, what I would love more than anything in the world is to time travel back to Jim Comey in, like, I don't know, 2008, and just show him this photo. (laughs) No context, nothing else. Just imagine how
0: you get here.
3: (laughs) This is your life, (laughs) Jim Comey. (laughs) This is, uh, I just, yes. uh, If I had, if I could use my time travel for one thing, this, I would really be tempted to do this because it is such a remarkable symbol of what in the world is going on.
0: So, do you think Jim Comey can get the Wu Tang album
1: back?
3: I bet he can. I I already know some people in the building. All right.
1: All right. (laughs) Kara, you have an object? I have an object lesson. I'm uh, sitting here with uh, my scotch in one hand, and then in my other hand, I'm actually holding a uh, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation water bottle. Are they sponsoring this week? Uh, Ben and I were at a conference together last week in San Francisco um, that the Hewlett Foundation sponsored, where they gave us these water bottles. Um, And it was uh, just an object lesson for me. It it was a really great gathering of cybersecurity policy people and uh, a lot of people from the government and former government, um, none of whom I would name here because it would probably get them in trouble to say. uh, It was actually just a really encouraging series of conversations about how serious and conscientious the people are who are in charge of our national security. Yeah. And that sort of uh, far beyond all of the insanity that you spend your days reporting on, there are uh, very thoughtful and very committed people working to protect America on a daily basis. And I think it's easy for us to sometimes overlook that.
2: I would just uh, second that, but also point out that while we were there, Tom Bossert uh, was removed as a... Was in charge of cybersecurity at the White House, and in the week that followed, Rob Joyce, uh, who is, uh, is has also uh, been removed, so uh, it, it's uh, or is going back to NSA. So um, you know, I, I totally agree with that, and I also have enjoyed uh, my Hewlett Foundation water bottle. But I'm also uh, concerned, actually, that the ranks are are thinning.
0: All right. Well, none of those serious people are on this podcast.
3: Ben just couldn't let us end on an uplifting yeah. note. <laughs> Seriously. Had to we come to bring in. You back down, Ben. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Carry <out. laughs> Well, shit. And that if happens. we're still here next
1: week,
4: please
0: tune in again.
1: <laughs>
0: more scotch. Oh, we'll be here with more scotch. But for now, that's all you get this week. Rational Security is a production of. Lawfare, Ben, where can they find our show page?
2: Ah, uh, still at spaghetti on the com. <laughs> uh, it'll move eventually.
0: Yeah, you go to San Francisco, you forget all that. about us, you forget about the internet. If
3: you tell Ben internet. what he's supposed to do, he's going to do the opposite of that. It's just his nature. <laughs> he's
1: either an asshole or a toddler.
0: <laughs>
3: or, or, or Spaghetti
2: on the Wall has compromised. Exactly
0: for president 2020. (laughs) You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. We still do Facebook. When you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show's producer and editor is Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jim Comey and the Above Average Hands.
4: Okay. Mm. Come on, not the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah, that's
0: so obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Are they cutting an album probably this probably right now? <laughs> I'm sorry.
3: Do you think subtle is your brand? <laughs> it's Touché. a little first thought. Touche, you're not confused.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not confused about who really does our music. Hopefully she'll keep playing it. Uh Sophia Yan. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittis, Tamar Goffman Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and our special guest, Garrett Graff, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.
3: Hold up.